right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Yes. And and I think Uh-oh. if memory serves me, Uh-oh. it is episode 89. I believe I believe it is. Yes. All right. Just putting that out there is 89. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, a no, it's, it's, a, it's a number. It's, it's a number. It's just before 90. <laughs> it is just before 90. It's after 88. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's so many ways we could describe 89. Hmm. How would I describe it? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't, I don't know, know how you would describe it. <laughs> is it special in some way? Ooh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to We're Discussing Numbers podcast. This is, this is Scott and that's Ollie. I'm Ollie. Woo! And this is actually Science in Between, where we talk about, I guess, mostly science teaching stuff, but whatever yeah. we want, frankly. I mean, uh, you joys, just, yeah, whatever. sorrow, you know. Pain, suffering. Yeah, stories I was from I was, our childhood. Whatever we want. Yes. We have talked about stories from our childhood. We have, yeah. This is, yeah, I think if if they've been with us for all 88 episodes, they've learned a lot about Scott and Ollie, yes. you know, for better or for worse, you know? Right. You know, or maybe they bailed like someplace like, you know, 40 episodes ago, like yeah, these guys. Four, yeah. four episodes ago, more like 40. I like, know. Yeah, <laughs> I heard what you said. Uh, I'm just right. They probably yeah. bailed after four. Yeah. They're like, what the what? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, we're happier here. And last week uh, we were talking about somehow uncertainty came up in our last episode. Yes, it certainly did. Did you see what I did there? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice work. N- nothing like pointing out your own uh, little verbal puns to make them really land better. Yeah, that's um, that's what it, it adds emphasis. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, yeah. So last week, uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about um, classroom discussion and. Why can't I remember what we were talking about, Ollie? Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, uncertainty came up and we put a pin in it. And now we're going to take that pin out. And here we are. And stick it in something else. Yes. Yes. Um, So, yeah. So do you do you want to lead off? Do you want to talk about why we care about uncertainty? Like why we're even having this conversation? Well, I think it's it's one of those things. I, I guess for me. Um, and this is something I think we've come to a couple po- points in the show is that I think it gives students a better sense of what science is all about, right? I think that, you know, helping them to see the uncertainty that exists in science gives them a truer representation of how the field moves and how the field gathers evidence to try to like, you know, deal with some of that uncertainty, but just well, like, just be, it just actually as we gather more information it just kind of moves where that uncertainty now lies because mm-hmm. it's it's never like you know this is one of the things when i'm i'm working with students and they're working with you know uh, like writing papers or something and they always want to use well research proves and i'm like yeah. uh, you know mm-hmm. you know no you have to use tentative language because it shows it suggests mm-hmm. you know because we always want to communicate from a place of uncertainty because what we know now what we think we know now right i to know in in mm-hmm. in uh, quotation marks that the, uh, the listeners can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, you know, if we think we know something right now, that, you know, worldview could change and really will change as we gather more evidence. And as, the, and that's, you know, 
intricately related to the tools that we have at our disposal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I, the, the way you can think about it is like knowing in science and in education for that matter is not a binary situation. It's not a yes or no. So um, you uncertainty is just a recognition of the fact that you can never really say we know something in science. What we can say is the preponderance of evidence. What right. we, so, but the reason that's important is to understand that fundamental truth about science, right? Which is that, you know, all we can do is rely on the evidence and the explanations that we currently have for phenomenon um, and use those to the best of our ability to make good decisions. But that doesn't mean because we don't know things with 100% certainty that we stop thinking science is useful to us. Like, okay, you don't know for 100% certainty that that's true, then, well, why use it? Why, why it? Well, because it's better than just random, right? It's better than just guessing because there's actually evidence that this, this is a, leads to a better, more likely outcome. So, um, so it is about this idea that, you know, science doesn't have quote unquote right answers, but science does, is not useless. It's, it's not, it's not the same as not knowing, right? So it, it's not knowing with a hundred percent certainty, but right. it's also not, not knowing. <laughs> that, there you that, go. Double that negative. Is, Thank you. I know it's eloquent. You it was mm. so eloquently worded. Mm. Well, I think a little bit about like how I, I, I taught some of this stuff when I was, when I was teaching and you know, one of the things that we did, like, you, you know, the, the boxes where you had like, you know, you had to figure out what was in the box. The inquiry based box. On the inquiry inquiry box. Right. And, and while it, so if for, for those of you who may not know what this is, there was sometimes a maze in the box and there was a ball in the box and you had to figure out based on listening and whatever evidence you can based on your senses to try to figure out what, what the maze looked like in the box or, you know, what was in the box. Like you could do this, which is like a cardboard box and try to get them to figure out. And so based on that, they're collecting evidence and tried to figure out what's in the box. The challenge with that though, is that, they could open the box. Right. Yeah. It's, and it's, so, a, well, it's an analogy, not, right. it's not, yeah. So, I mean, we can't open the box. I mean, there's right. like, we, we don't, and I know that's the, I mean, that's sort of like, you know, out there, right? Theoretically, <laughs> like, you know, when you start to really think about it, Man, do you ever like, really look at your hand and what? Yeah, dude. Yeah. You can't open the, open box. the box, man. You just can't. That's the, there it is. Name of the show, name yeah. of the episode right there. Can't, can't open, open the box. The, yeah, but I mean, you can't. You know, in science, we, we, we never get to the point where we're like 100% sure what anything is. I mean, we like, and I, I think this comes back to the nature of science conversation where, you know, you know, people outside of science go, well, there's all these laws in science and those laws are, yeah, but the laws only just tell us, they tell us really rudimentary things. I mean, they're, they're powerful things, but they're rudimentary in terms of it's all of the relationships and the, you know, how things, you know, correlate to certain other things like, you know, the gas laws and gravitational laws and all that. They're important. They really have predictive powers, but they don't have any explanatory powers at all. Right. They have no idea of like why, like universal law of gravitation doesn't tell us anything about like what causes gravitation. It's just like, hey, here's the, you know, distance mass, you know, there you go. Go off and do some calculations. It's like, all right, dude. You know, but I'll say that it's like, well, what, what causes gravitation, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and even the idea that like, 
I mean, it, this can we we can get very philosoph- philosophical very quickly in this in this do episode. It, so well, well <laughs> dude. It, uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know, even even the fact that we define gravitation the way that we do is sure, arbitrary, yeah. right? Like we chose it, and and we made decisions about all sorts of of pieces in that equation, right? That that um that were constructed by humans. Now, you know, again that sometimes people say, oh, well, then it doesn't mean anything, right? Because, oh, it's just all made up. It is all made up, but it's that doesn't mean it's not powerful, right? You know, it's a first, you know, like you're saying, it's a first or nth order approximation, right? It's, it's never going to be nature. You're never going to have nature modeled. But what you can do is approximate certain aspects of it, which can help you then predict and explain, which yeah, I agree with you, the laws don't do. Um, things in a tentative way we can say well this is our current explanation for that this is why we think it happens not this is how it happens this is how we think it happens and there's lots of evidence to support that but the difference that difference the difference between our explanation and reality is what we're talking about when we talk about uncertainty uh, or at least it's one of the kinds there's lots of ways uncertainty appears but that's certainly one of the main ways right so there is a phenomenon out, out in the world and we have an explanations for various aspects for it and and the difference between those explanations and what the world actually is is our uncertainty right we don't we don't know that we don't know the what those because we don't know in what ways our our explanations aren't 100% right yeah i think what's what's interesting about that is that you know we i guess don't always you know we 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 try to we don't always con- confront the the biases we have right as as researchers as scientists and maybe not as, in we certainly don't do it in a public way and we don't also i don't remember ever really thinking about that in classroom settings like how we help students to think about what biases they might have in their data collection methods or like, you know, because like, you know, a, any, even, even tools, like tools, like, you know, like anything that measures something in a classroom um, has some sort of like bias built in because somebody created that thing. Right. I mean, yeah. and so, you know, while we consider it to be some sort of objective measure, you know, it adds a degree that bias of whoever created it or devised it or whatever, you know, is, is adding some bias to the system that is, you know, in, increases uncertainty. Right. But the tricky thing, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think the tricky thing about the word bias is that it carries an intentionality that I right. think we have to be careful about. Right. Yeah. Because, because then people say, oh, well, you know, people are biased. Is that what you're saying? And it's like, well, yeah. no, that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is that we have a point of view, we have a perspective, we have things that contribute to our understanding. And those are baked into the way that we mm-hmm. think in ways that make it impossible for us to, to extract those and, and be independent of them. And so it's not really bias. And I, and I know you know this, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm no, not, no, no, it's fine. I, I'm but, with you. Uh, but I think that, you know, that's why, you know, um, uncertainty or, you know, um, some other term that, is explicitly indicating that this is a natural part of the way things work. Yeah. There's, there's nothing you can, you can't eliminate it. Um, it is built in, like, there's no such thing as getting rid of all uncertainty. Like you can never do that. Um, 
because that's that's the nature of of scientific work is that you never perfectly understand um, the things that you're trying to explain. So uncertainty is a natural part of the system. The thing that scientists are constantly trying to do is understand how much and of what kind of uncertainty is present in any given explanation. And they can never know that either. But that's when we when we talk about, you know, quote unquote, experimental error. And this is how that came up last week, or at least one of the ways it came up. When we talk about experimental error, part of what that is trying to do is recognize that there, you know, that there is a difference between reality and our explanations of reality. And so trying to say, well, what do we think those things, you know, what are, what are the areas in which those things exist? Uh, that's, that's really useful because it, it keeps scientists, um, honest, right? So there's, uh, well, do you, I mean, do you want to talk about this article? You just, no, I mean, I know you, oh, you I, haven't I, read it, but, but it no, has an would, interesting distinction in there. So I didn't know. If uh, yeah, you no, I, I will come back to that in a second. Cause I think that okay. the, the one I want to kind of talk about the, 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 the bias a little bit more um, because I think it's, it's, it's important. Like I, not to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but you know, uh, I think one of the, you know, the known knowns, you know, yeah, and the unknown knowns <laughs> and the unknown unknowns uh-huh. and right. Yeah. And the known unknowns. I mean, I know yeah. that's, but I mean, there are, like that's I think what gets at the bias is that like there are things we know that are unknown, right? Those are the things we go, well, you know what? I there are limitations, but there are like a ton of unknown unknowns. Like we don't even mm-hmm. have fathom what they are. Right. And 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 that's where, you know, and I again it, it, it pains me to like quote Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> you know. But I mean, but that's the that's the thing that comes back to me when I whenever I think about like a problem or you know, you know, an investigation or something. Um, research, I, I go, okay, well, what are some of the things that we know we know about this, you know, and what are some of the things we know that we have no conceptualization, like those, those questions that we, we know to ask, you know? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so I, that I think is a, maybe a better way of framing the bias, right? Yeah. And then like just saying, cause I, you're right. The bias has a loaded, you know, sort of weight to it that right. like whenever you talk about like what biases you to have you know immediately people like kind of armor up and say hey you yeah. know what i don't ha- i don't have bias we all right. have bias right. you know and it's like again like you know the last week with the big m little m you know with modeling that's what the conversation was modeling last week yeah. uh there it is we we, we landed on it Whoop. but but big b you know, little B, you know, I mean, maybe, I mean, we all have the little B biases and some of them are, some folks have big B biases, right? But these are the, the, the biases that we have in, you know, just by the, the nature of, you know, our perspectives in the world as we're, and how we apply them to the investigations and the things we do in our classrooms, you know, not like intended bias as a, like, we're like, you know, putting our, you know, thumb on the scales to like influence the outcome, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think the important um, piece here is, well, there are many important pieces, but one of the important pieces is that one of the jobs of a a scientist is to recognize that this, that this uncertainty, these, these biases, these differences exist so that they can be better at what they're doing. Right. So there's a quote from Richard Feynman that I just love. And I use with my student, my pre-service teachers all the time. So he said, the thing that's unusual about good scientists is that while they're doing whatever they're doing, they're not so sure of themselves as others usually are. They can live with steady doubt. 
And I really like that because it's yeah. this idea that like you shouldn't be really confident about your scientific ideas. You should always be pushing them. You should always be thinking about like, in what ways might this idea be wrong? Like not yeah. instead of saying, are, what, why are all the reasons my idea is right, um, yeah. which is how we usually operate in the world. It's in what ways or how could my idea be wrong? Um, and I think that, that, um, that's flipping that switch um, turns uncertainty into a sort of, you know, superpower for you, right? I mean, it can be a thing that that can really make make your understandings of the world so much better if what you're constantly doing is saying, not how is this right, but how is this wrong? Yeah, one of the things I was uh, I did before, you know, I, I, I did a little show prep, a little show mm. prep, just a little bit. Look at you. And- and and I'll and I dropped that link into the uh, in the chat, but I'll make sure we put it in the show notes. Was an article just came out like this year on untr- untrustworthiness and uncertainty and mm-hmm. differentiating uh, between these. And this was in uh, Science and Education, just uh, in 2022. So I'll put mm-hmm. a link in there. But I think this deserves some conversation because I think that you know that uncertainty becomes armored, right? In, yeah. in, in the big you know, national conversation around science is that because we recognize our uncertainty yeah. and we communicate that uncertainty, other people see it as being untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And we have to, we have to, as science teachers, Teach that, teach right. the difference, teach the difference between it, you know, because, you know, what they, well, uh, the, you know, people, and this is where I, and I don't want to go to like Joe Rogan or anything, but that's mm-hmm. where like he lives in, like he brings those folks in and that, and then, you know, um, cultivates the uncertainty as like, we shouldn't trust any of these folks, right. like, cause they don't know what they're talking about because clearly if they knew what they're talking about, they'd be more certain. Right. And that's, that's just a fundamental uh, misrepresentation of science. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting because one of the conflicts that, that we often talk about um, when we're talking about science in classrooms and in the world is the conflict between science and religion. Right. And, yeah. and one of the, I, I think as you were talking, which struck me that one of the differences between those two epistemological stances on the world is that religion is about certainty it, yeah. because it's about belief. So belief is inherently certain. I believe this to be true. Therefore, I'm certain of it, right? Whereas science is inherently uncertain. And, and therefore, the, the, the um, tension there is that you're, <laughs> when you say that you're uncertain, it sounds like your beliefs are weak, right? Yeah. It's, and so that it becomes this criticism of, you know, that, that science, you know, isn't certain and I am certain and therefore my ideas must be better, right? Because my ideas are certain. And I think science actually, you know, again, argues exactly the opposite, that if you're certain of your ideas, there's almost a hundred percent chance that you're wrong yeah. because certainty just doesn't exist that way for things. So you should always be unpacking the question to see like where where does the uncertainty lie where where is it that that the the uh the thing that you are you believe to be true is is breaking down in some way so how do we teach this 
Well, yeah, that- I think the most efficient way is you put a definition of uncertainty on the board and then you have put students write it down in their notebooks. And then right. at the end of every lab um, uh, assignment that you give them, you ask them to describe the uncertainty in the lab. Maybe we'll call it experimental error in the lab. Right. So and we give them an equation for it. If we give them an equation oh, on a, how to super good idea. So we can quantify their uncertainty. That yep. would be awesome. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure that would be very effective. Right. Can we give them a, li- a Likert scale and have them rank oh. their uncertainty? from one to ten yeah i love i love whenever people say well like it like it's scales those are you know that's that's quantitative you know and that's a a different degree of you know certainty than qualitative work you know right because they're just they're just shifting they're hiding their uncertainty behind you know these little one to five or one to seven so if you name 10 categories that's not as good because that's you need you need if once they're numericized then then their truth their truthiness goes up yeah we didn't talk about truthiness that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) Stephen colbert well i mean the other part with it is you know uh we could talk about you know uncertainty and rubric design that's a big Uh, conversation on our campus right now is rubric there's 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 someone uh, on our campus recently who's been talking about rubrics and he's like rubrics, rubrics. And in a meeting we counted and <laughs> he used the word 27 times in a wow. meeting. Yeah. Wow. That, that's how long, how, how long was the meeting? Maybe an hour. Okay. It was maybe an hour. Yeah. Once every two minutes. That's pretty solid yeah. work there. I know it is. And <laughs> I think he was on a roll there for a repetition, little bit. I mean, it was repetition, yeah, repetition. very condensed as if that <clears throat> increase, uh, you know, increases the certainty of something. Yeah. Just, it just right. hides it in little boxes. That's yeah. all it does. It hides the yeah. uncertainty. In it little breaks boxes. the uncertainty into smaller chunks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> More digestible them. chunks. <laughs> yes. That's very behaviorist. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. We're going to break our uncertainty into little chunks so we can eat them one at a time. Yes. Nom, 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 nom. Ooh, I know. <laughs> That's a very good piece of uncertainty. Oh, that wow. One. This this may be my favorite episode of all time. <laughs> We've completely, completely gone off the rails. Right. So how, so how do we teach this? Is the That's question. the that, question. That's right. the question. Well, we've identified how we don't do it, right? We, we have in our, our, our sarcastic way. We have identified mm-hmm. the way not to. I mean, I think so, uh, you know, the... The answer I think we would always give to almost everything about science teaching is, well, of course, it's hard and complicated, but the best thing to do is to teach the way that we think about science teaching, which is to let students develop their own explanations and then see that those explanations don't hold up over time, right? So they see like, oh, wait, this thing that we thought we were really confident about actually falls apart. um, with a little bit of scrutiny, either because it doesn't make sense or because the evidence isn't there. Or because there's evidence against this particular explanation in particular ways. So we have to rethink it. And the more that you do that, the more that you don't, I mean, I'm not saying you can't talk about uncertainty. I think it's good to talk about uncertainty. And we can talk about some context where it's, I think, maybe super critical to talk about uncertainty. But I think it's not the talking about uncertainty that helps them understand it. It's it's the doing of the explanations and the changing of the explanations over time that really gets them to understand what uncertainty means. Yeah, I I think the... You know, I think about other ways that we can model this for students, and I come back to the, you know, the the, fr- the frames of reference, which I think is the, you know, the place we, you know, a few minutes ago we we're talking about. But like, there's there's one, I don't know, graphical representation where a bunch of people are looking at the same thing, yeah. and from one frame of reference it looks like one thing, and one from the, another frame of reference it mm-hmm. looks like another, and I think that could be a really good scaffold 
for students to be able to, you know, at least to start thinking about like, and just having the conversation of like, well, how does, how does your frame of reference? And maybe that's the better way of framing bias is like, how does your frame of reference? And I know that's something different in physics, yeah. you know, your frame of reference, but you know, how does your frame of reference, how might it impact how, um, how certain you are about your explanation? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And, and I, you know, I think, um, the the area that I think is worth um, particular attention because I think it's increasingly something that's going to be part of both. Well, it is increasingly part of science, but it's increasingly part of science teaching, which is simulations and models that that are com- computational, right? That are off yeah. and often not built by students. So, so some of the research I'm doing is around these computational models and and data visualizations and simulations and. I think that's a place where it's really hard to to dig into that because when you make your own explanation for something, it's a little easier to see where it is that you've constructed things yeah. that may be weak. But when you're taking somebody else's model, which is basically how we teach all science, but but let's stick with the simulation for now, right? If you give kids like we have this, it's called uh, Tectonic Explorer, and it's an Earth-like planet simulation that allows kids to look at plate dynamics, right, on a whole on a whole planet. Um, and that's really cool, but it's also limited, right? It, 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 it glosses a lot of things about the way that, that are, that our natural systems are of the earth actually work. So there's a lot of uncertainty that's built into that model, right? Not because it's a phenomenon in the world, but because it actually represents an explanation. And so you're interacting with an explanation sort of like it's the real world. So you're playing yeah. with this planet and you're treating it like it's a real planet on some level when you're because you're trying to develop an explanation. Um, but it's not really a real planet and it's been simplified. And as a result, there's a whole bunch of an uncertainty that's built in to the model itself. So um, so I think this is a really interesting area where we are still trying to understand how to help kids understand that, because the reason this is important isn't because of this simulation that they're doing in, in a classroom with plate tectonics. The reason it's important is because in the real world, scientists come out and say, OK, we have climate models and our climate models tell us X. And so then people say, oh, well, that's just a model. It's not a real thing. Um, It's just, you know, a bunch of numbers that you plugged into a computer. And so understanding this, both the strengths and limitations of those computational models is just as important as, as the, you know, the other kinds of explanations that we think about in science. Yeah. I think this came up last week when we were talking about uh, models and, and atmospheric models. And we were talking about the, um, the Michael Lewis podcast yep. and against the rules. I got it right this time. Yeah, Good man. And, and how uh, respecting the polygon was a thing. And this is again, coming back that in Alabama, I think there was a meteorologist who could predict within a couple block area where our tornado was likely to happen. And, and the uncertainty in that modeling, um, you know, sort of fostered doubt Right. in in the in in the viewers and and the community because they were like well if a tornado didn't happen and and you know just because it model they're telling people to you know hey it's time to get to your basement you know right. there's there's a highly high likelihood that there's a you know a tornado and they're like oh hold on it didn't happen so clearly right. they don't know what the heck they're going you know right. as if you know 
you know, that, you know, being safe and hiding out in your basement for an hour is, is lost time or bad, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, well, heck, you know, we didn't have a yeah. tornado. These guys are wrong. I'm not right. going to listen to them anymore. You know, I wouldn't take that chance. You know, yeah. it's like, what, what's, what's the alternative, right? Yeah, what's, which is they're yeah. right. And you're dead because right. you didn't listen to them. Yeah. But I think that's where this whole thing came up is that, yeah. you know, there's an uncertainty in, in everything. Like when they say, okay, there's a 90% chance of rain, you know, we talked about this, uh, you know, from the standpoint of what was the dark skies was the, uh, you know, the app you use right. and that, you know, sometimes it doesn't rain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that the, our, our explanations, our models aren't, you know, good. They're right. great. It's just that, you know, there's an uncertainty built into the system because we don't know it all and we're never going to know it all. We might get better, but yeah. there's always going to be some uncertainty that's built into it, um, especially from a predictive standpoint. And, yeah. and, and that's where I think that it, you know, benefits our students and our, you know, citizenry to be able to understand what that is all about. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting. You did, when you talked about that, uh, would you call a tectonic explorer or something Yeah. Um, that like, what was the conversation like to build uncertainty into the system? Like, like how did that come, come about? Like, and, and- well, it, you, you don't intentionally build uncertainty into the system. Right. But, but the reality is like that model is built on, well, in the, in this case, like a simulation, which is different than, a, than some other computational models, but let's stick with simulation, which is what this one is. Um, it's, it's essentially built on, on physics equations, right? So basically you, you give all these little pixels in the model, you give each pixel certain characteristics. It has a certain kind of mass. It's moving at a certain velocity. It's got a certain density, and then it interacts with the other sort of pixels around it or whatever the unit is. And at, based on that, it creates dynamics, right? It creates mm-hmm. a, a system that's dynamic. But the problem is, you know, as we were just talking about, you know, those, those everything's idealized there. So you've got all these little pixels that are acting as if they, they're, there's no complex, you know, like the whole, for example, the whole pixel gets exact. This goes back to you we were talking about the point mass, right? Mm-hmm. Like the whole pixel gets the same characteristics, even though that pixel on the planet could represent hundreds of miles right because your 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 pixels are 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 small but we're talking about a planet right and so all of that creates this this uncertainty in the sense that the model doesn't exactly behave like the a thing in the real world would right because that because the thing in the real world has a lot more complexity to it and so any model has uncertainty which and and the uncertainty isn't are we you know, again, this gets to that, what is a nuanced nature of uncertainty? But what we're really talking about when we're talking about the uncertainty is how certain are we that the what the model does is what the world would do under those circumstances, right? And so what we say is the reason the model is uncertain is because it doesn't behave exactly like the world does. It behaves like the model does. And that's super useful, but it also doesn't predict you know, if you've got two plates moving towards each other and they have certain densities, well, you're going to get you're going to get mountains um, on one side or the other, 
and they're going to be of a certain height and a certain set of characteristics and whatever, but they're not going to match the real world. You won't be able to then say, oh, I just created the Andes and it looks exactly like the Andes and the patterns like, exactly the nailed same. It. Nailed it, right? And that's what, you know, sometimes I think there's a sense that kids have that like, that's how it's going to work. So I think that idea of uncertainty is it comes up in that context, right? It's not that the modelers intentionally build uncertainty in, yeah. it's that every model inherently has uncertainty in it. And it's just a question of saying, let's be careful and make sure that we understand that this model has uncertainty and that it isn't, that it's, it's also why when we talk about the simulation, we talk about it as an Earth-like planet, not as Earth. Because, you know, we, for example, the maximum number of plates you can have in this simulation is five, maybe six now, but let's say six. Okay, well, the, the Earth has a lot more plates than that. And the plates are not, you know, easily defined and all sorts of other characteristics. So there's lots of things that you do that gloss over the real complexity of the world. And that builds into that model uncertainty in, in the form that we're talking about, the difference between the model and the world. I was just thinking, uh, as you were saying that, the number of times we might have said uncertainty in this yeah, episode. probably more May, than 27. I, I think it exceeds 27, yeah. absolutely. But it was an episode about so that's fair yeah. but i you know one other thing i was just thinking about um bef before i was just talking about the model and you asked that question was i wonder if it would be productive to use sports as a way to think about uncertainty with students mm. right which is to say okay um let let let's give an example my my uh Liverpool uh, football club is going to be playing the Tottenham Hotspur on Saturday right so <clears throat> we could say like well how certain am I that or, or what how likely is it that Liverpool is going to win that game well it's it's likely is well is it 80% likely is it 90% likely is it 70% likely and then there's other things you could say like okay well well, okay, so let's say we set it to say we think it's 80% likely that, that Liverpool is going to win the game, right? Well, what if Tottenham Hotspur wins the game? Does that mean that the the original prediction was or the original cert level of certainty was incorrect? No, it's that, it's that the, the, the event was inherently uncertain. Things can, things can happen that we do not expect yeah. to happen because our models aren't perfect, right? You know, we now can, are there other things we could talk about? Like, is it likely the score is going to be 4,000 to 2,000? Well, we can have, we can say there's a hundred percent chance that it, that it will not be that right. Because that, that doesn't happen in soccer. Those, the, that is not a thing that occurs. Right. Um, could it be 10 to one? Sure. That's, that's in yeah. the realm of possibility. What are the chances but of it? Highly unlikely, highly unlikely. Right. So, you know, so just based on that, you can start to say, well, yeah, we can make predictions uh, about the game based on what we understand, but we're never going to be able to figure out what the outcome is in advance because the outcome is going to be what the outcome is going to be. And it and it can that can only be known after. Right. And this goes back to the the polygon, right? It's like you you can say there's a ninety percent chance that that you're yeah. inside the polygon where the tornado will form, and you'll and if it does, your house is going to be torn to the ground. But there's a ten percent chance that won't happen. So you have to make a decision: like, do you yeah. do you do you want to go to the basement, or do you want to say, um, nah, you know, because because we're not certain the tornado is going to form, I'm just going to stay up here and watch my Liverpool match on television and and get destroyed. And yeah. And and hopefully they still win. 
<sighs> they better. That's all I can say. Come on. Well, I was thinking about it from, you know, I'm, I, while I like uh, European football, um, I, mm. you know, I watch lots of, I've watched lots of sports. I, you know, right now hockey is a big one. Um, it, but I'm, I also think a little bit about like foot, like American football and like just where the uncertainty lies when someone, you know, catches the ball, what counts as a catch, mm. right? Cause they catch the, the ball is in their hand and, you know, then you have these, you know, officials who look and say, okay, yeah, he had two feet on the ground he held it for some period of time and then voila it's a catch but then sometimes when they look back at you know other evidence they go well you know you know maybe not right. they're, they're in um you know i'm a i'm a pittsburgh sports fan um there's a a catch called the immaculate reception mm, yes. and like so it's a you know from the 70s uh they still don't know whether franco harris caught the ball or not Mm-hmm. like no yeah. like like officially in terms of what a catch what, catch, what a catch right, means right i mean he uh, he whether it was a legal catch or not they know right. how it was ruled yeah. but based on the data and the evidence they have it's still a much discussed yeah. you know event and yeah. i think from that is that is where that uncertainty and i think so using yeah. things like that where you know we have video evidence we have mm-hmm. people involved in it who yeah. were there, who've talked about it. Mm-hmm. And still it's all just, you know, based on their frames of reference, based on their yeah. biases. Yeah. You know, I think you ask every Pittsburgh sports fan, you know, Franco Harris yeah. caught the ball. Right. Right. You know, so right. and I yeah, well, I, I, I get Go yeah, ahead. I was gonna say I could sense all of the non-sports people out there shutting this uh, shutting yeah, this episode off. We don't usually go here. You know, we don't usually no, we sports. don't usually talk about sports. But but part of it is I think, and part of what triggered it was you know going back to Michael Lewis's podcast. One of the interesting things that he talked about was errors in baseball. Yes, and, and how that could be reconceived, right? In that you know we we think of errors as mistakes, and and basically I've forgotten the the guy's name now. The 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 baseball guru, data guru. But one of the things he said is you can think of an error as being an instance where the player was good enough to be in the right position. And so, so it actually is is a positive indicator of their ability to, to be a good player, right? Because they were in a position to make a play. They didn't make a play, but that doesn't, that doesn't count as an error. He he's arguing that that actually could be viewed as in a positive, positive way, so right. interpreting it is in a different way. So I think, I think all of that to say, whether it's the immaculate reception or an error or, or the Liverpool Tottenham match, the, the point is that, that we, um, we make decisions under uncertainty um, and, and the way to make the best possible decision is to try and understand what uncertainty is present so that we can know, okay, uh, the, I'm doing this and I know it's an uncertain decision, but at least I I know I'm on the right side of the statistics, right. Or, I'm, uh, or the evidence or whatever it is that we have. So I think we uh, we have certainly uh, spent time talking about uncertainty today. We, we've made uncertainty more certain. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We have. Yes, yes. And we have probably um, said uncertainty more than twenty seven times. So there's we that. have. And you just yeah. added. You had just added the total. So, so you want to move to Joyce? Like, yes. 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 Let's move to Joyce. Yeah. Do, do you have one? Let's start. Joy. I have Yay. a joy. 
So um, I am just finishing a novel by Richard Powers. Um, it is called The Overstory. Um, it is it is not. Uh, it it has its own recommendation in that so uh, it's won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction among other uh, among other laudits, but um, but it's a really interesting book and I think it's a good book for people who are sciencey people and also people who are environmentally people. Um, but it's it's a book about trees, sort of. Um, so the so the so thematically the whole story is about trees and about you know, it's, it's fiction. So it's, it's describing a a very uh, America like place, but I don't think it's, you know, it's not meant to represent fact though. There's a lot of, um, you know, foundational truth in it. Um, But it's, it's about the relationship between humans and trees and, and, um, and some of the characters are based on reality. There's a, there's a woman in the story who's a scientist who does uh, tree research and, and, and her character is based on a real person in the world who, who does research about trees, but, but it really, I mean, the main thing it does is it sort of complexifies the nature of trees as an organism and really gives them a a much more, um, it, it, it uses what we know about trees to give us a really interesting um, take on how they are as organisms in the world and, and what we do when, when we, you know, cut them down and, and, and how we misunderstand as we so often do um, the nature of, for example, what a forest is um, and that, that a natural forest is exactly the same as a forest where we've cut down all the trees and replanted the way that, humans do, which is usually in nice, neat rows, all the same kind of tree and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, I mean, it's human stories and there's, I think, 10 different characters. Um, and it starts with sort of individually introducing each of their stories and their relationship to trees. And then it starts weaving those characters together. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a really sophisticated and complex book, but fascinating and interesting. And I really, really recommend it. It's a very cool book. That sounds cool. Yeah. Mine cool. is, you know, uh, I keep going back to the same well, um, comics and comic books. And uh, the Disney Plus show, Moon Knight. Oh, yeah. So uh, the sixth episode just dropped recently. And so that's a, the complete limited season. And uh, if you're not familiar with Moon Knight, um, he, I, I don't know, Marvel, uh I think when he was created, it was kind of like a, a like a Batman type of character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's uh, positioned in like Egyptian mythology. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, Khonshu, who's the god of night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Moon Knight is his avatar. He's the person who acts on Khonshu's behalf, um, and he's played by uh, Oscar Isaac, um, who is awesome. He Pretty is good actor. Aw- he is awesome in this. Like, I'm going to just say he is awesome because what's what's interesting about Moon Knight as a character, and this is one of the things I think it's pretty um, unique about the Marvel world, is that they try to put like real problems on their characters. Like, so, mm-hmm. you know, Spider-Man was a teenager. He had teenager problems and, and all that. Well, Moon Knight has dissociative identity disorder which so he's has multiple personalities and so in the series um 
you get to see Oscar Isaac play these multiple people mm-hmm. sometimes at the same time. Yeah. And it is brilliant. It is brilliant to watch. Um, he is just awesome. And uh, the other folks that are in the show, there's uh, Ethan uh, Hawk, who plays the villain. Mm. Also, you know, he's a, uh, an amazing actor. Um, and then there's some other folks that you may not know who just are just putting on like star performances. It is probably the best Disney Plus show that I've seen. Um, All right. And and what's what's great is that if you have no knowledge of Moon Knight, or even if you're not a Marvel fan, this you know need to know nothing about the Marvel world at all to come into this, watch it, and watch the six episode because it stands alone as its own complete story. And it's not what's I always hate whenever they introduce new characters and they do an origin story like oh here's how they got it. I mean that's we didn't. Uh, woven into this uh, show, but that's not like it, right? There's a whole nother story and it's complete. Like, and it's like, Hey, here's the beginning. Here's a middle, here's an end. And it's not like, you know, some of the other Disney plus shows, like, like WandaVision or like, I know you've watched uh, some of these. uh, There's always been the, what's the reveal. Who's the, who's the Marvel bad guy. Who's the person who's behind the scenes. You know who the bad guy is in the very first episode. Like, you know, it, and and so there's no, you're not waiting for a reveal. You're just waiting for like, sort of like a conclusion. Like, how does this mm-hmm. play out? And I think that's some, some really good storytelling. And they cover a lot of territory, some of which they're really, uh, you get really emotionally connected to these characters that Oscar Isaac plays. And then, you, you, you know, when it's revealed to some of the, the causes of this, it's really kind of heartbreaking. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's brilliant television. Um, my my wife, who's kind of like a, you know, she's kind of a peripheral Marvel fan. She watches mm-hmm. it because I watch it. She goes, this is probably the best one I've seen. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes she's just kind of like, uh, you know. Yeah. But this one, she was really, she really enjoyed. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's been on my short list for a while, so I'll have to move it up a little bit and see. If They're all out there now. They're all six episodes, so you can watch them like back binge to back. It. To, binge it. I think it'll probably be a little bit under five hours, you know, because yeah. each episode is like maybe, I think, you know, 50, 45 to 50 minutes. So, you know. Cool. Yeah. Right. A rainy, rainy day, week, you know, oh, a rainy day. Rainy day weekend. Look at that. Yeah. We you can do it. Coming up. Yeah, you could do that. Little moon night. (sighs) All right. Well, hey, this has been Science in Between. Yes, it has. And I'm Ollie, and that's confirmed. Scott. Scott. And we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.